Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Faber. Pastor Jonathan Mason, and I want to welcome you to the first, the first edition of the Pastor's Office in 2024. Uh, God be praised that we've made it into a new year with new possibilities, new opportunities. I am so excited. Uh, I just can't hide it. I got to say this to you uh, as we come into this new year. I want to start out by saying thank you. Uh, Thank you to the 15th Precinct uh, of the Philadelphia Police Department and Captain Newsom. As you know, it is in the black tradition. We have a service that we call Watch Night. Uh, And Watch Night service is typically uh, held uh, at 10 o'clock in the evening, 1030 in the evening. uh, And we go right into the new year. Uh, As a result of the pandemic, many churches in 2020, 2021, went virtual. Uh, Many churches went to four o'clock and five o'clock and six o'clock watch night services. And I will raise my hand and say that the church that I pastor, Northeast Baptist Church, uh, we went to seven o'clock last year, 2023. But the devil is a liar. I I, I said that watch night is a tradition uh, that we celebrate. And if you know the history, you know why. Uh, But it's a tradition that we celebrate uh, as the year turns into the new year. Uh, And so I made a decision that we were going to have service at the traditional time. Uh, And I got much pushback. Uh, from members, from officers, uh, from a lot of people. Uh, It's dangerous out there, Pastor, and people don't want to be out there late at night. Um, You know, but but, but here's the thing that I thought about, and here's the thing that is factual. Uh, Even if they're not in church at that time, most people are somewhere else. Let's just face it. A lot of them at the club, at parties, at family get-togethers. And so I was determined that we weren't going to change tradition to accommodate social schedules. Uh, And so I called Captain Newsom at the 15th Precinct, and I asked him if he would be willing uh, to send some officers down here to help with uh, bringing our people in and out of the church and just to make sure that it was safe. And I got to tell you something. Not only did he send officers down, but two of the officers actually came into the service. And, And watch this. I had people telling me nobody would be here. We had one of our best crowds that we've ever had. What did I say earlier? The devil is a liar. And when you trust God, I promise you that he will bring marvelous things to fruition. So I I needed to start the year off by thanking uh, Captain Newsom and the 15th Precinct. Uh, But but, but we do have a great show today. We've got great guests here uh, with us this afternoon. And and, and I want to talk about something. 
as you know, I pastor in the Frankfurt section of Philadelphia. I grew up out in Abington, Pennsylvania. And in Abington, we I, I never encountered homelessness among young people. It just was not a thing. Uh, and, well, since I've been pastoring uh, Northeast, I have encountered a number of young people that, while they may not be out on the block in a tent or under a blanket, they are living at somebody else's house other than the house that they've been raised in or other than the house that they've been living in. They are accepting a favor from a friend or a neighbor to take a room for a short period of time. I've even experienced young people who have vehicles and have had to spend nights in their vehicles. I've encountered young people who've had to squat in houses that don't have gas and electricity. This, this is an issue. So I did some research, and I found out that over 4.2 million young people have experienced homelessness in this country. I, I'm letting that sink in for a second, because it's not something we think about. It's not something that when we process life, that we expect young people to have to endure. But homelessness is a real thing. And I was happy to find out that there is an effort in Harrisburg to do something about youth homelessness. And I wanted to bring in the chair of the House Children and Youth Committee, uh, Representative Donna Bullock, to talk to us about what's going on in Harrisburg. Uh, she's been on the show before. She represents the 195th district right here in Philadelphia County. And she's been doing a wonderful job for her constituents and for the citizens of the state of Pennsylvania. So I want to welcome into the pastor's office our first guest of 2024, uh, Representative Donna Bullock. Representative Bullock, how are you this afternoon? And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I am highly favored and blessed uh, to bring in a new year. Um, an honor to be able to do that with you to talk about such an important topic here in Philadelphia and, to be honest, across the Commonwealth. Um, so I look forward to um, doing more work in this space and sharing some of this information with your listeners so that we can help our young people. Now, I want to know, uh, and of course you're a public servant and, and, and these issues are brought to your table, but did you have any idea or were you like me uh, in not really recognizing the fact that this was such an issue in our country and in the Commonwealth. So, so Pastor, I had a personal experience, you know, of myself. I grew up in a household that was housing insecure, right, as a, in a household with my mom that, you know, uh, we, we were moving from house to house, and I never quite understood why. Um, and I think it stood out to me when I was applying for my uh, license to practice law. One of the things you have to do is list every address you've ever had in your life. And that list ran for, you know, 20, 20 25 addresses. And I was only 25. Wow. So I realized that my mother was moving or sharing spaces with other relatives or 
taking care of an elder so we can sleep on their couch. Um, and these things are a part of housing insecurity. But at the same time that I got elected, um, in 2015, I met a young man who was working at a coffee shop in my district called Monkey in the Elephant, which uh, employs young people aging out of foster care. And as I spoke to him and he was making my hot chocolate that particular day, he shared with me that he was living in a pickup truck um, because he was he was he didn't have a place to live and that he had just had got um, his girlfriend pregnant and was trying to get some help for her. And I appreciated that he his focus was trying to help this young woman and his soon-to-be child and not thinking about what he was going to do for himself. He's like, I'll stay in this truck. I just need help for my, for my baby mother and a child. But I realized right then that this was a bigger issue, um, particularly for young adults who were aging out of foster care, young people who may have disclosed to their parents that they identified as LGBTQ um, and for other reasons may have been um, or decided to leave their homes. Um, and so we were seeing a number of these young people. Unfortunately, we were seeing um, in our system um, children aging out of foster care and out of the foster care system into either the homeless system or the criminal justice system because we're not providing them with the resources that parents would make sure that you have as you age into adulthood. And that's an unfortunate situation, and we need to do better by our young people um, to prepare them for that. But what is surprising is that in the city of Philadelphia, we have 8,000 young people, students, that's children, and from, you know, infants to 18, who have been identified by the school district as homeless or housing insecure. 8,000, that's an increase, more than 40,000 across the Commonwealth. In Philadelphia, the highest percentage of that 8,000 that is homeless are actually children under the age of two. So we have a lot of work to do, whether we're talking about young adults or our most precious infants who are experiencing homelessness in the city. So I'm sitting here listening to you, and there were two points that you brought up. You said that there are young people who age out of foster care. Uh, and then there are young people who have identified as LGBTQ uh, who have basically been put out, ended up homeless. My sermon today was titled, We Need More Salt. It comes from Matthew, the fifth chapter, 13th verse, where Jesus is preaching a sermon on the mountain. He says, we are the salt of the earth. Uh, And and it's interesting. I'm not going to preach the sermon here, but it does directly correlate with your point um, one of my points was that salt is used to preserve life uh, or to make food last longer. And as the salt of the earth, as members of the body of Christ, our job is to preserve lives and help them to last longer. And one of the things I bring up, ironically, is this issue of young people who uh, have identified as LGBTQ and then their families turn their backs on them. You know, mm-hmm. that's not preserving life. That's discarding life. Uh, and, 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 and I guess my question to you is, 
Are there no safeguards when we talk about kids aging out of foster care? Now, we know, let's face it, some of these people who do foster care, they do it to get the check, right? But are there no safeguards in the system to make sure that there's a pathway to uh, college or some other thing for these young people that are coming out of foster care? And then what are we doing? about these LGBTQ young people who are discarded by their families. Because guess what? That number of young people who identify in that lifestyle, that's increasing too. I hope I didn't give you too much in that, in that no, question. No, it, it, I hear you. Um, it's, so there's a number of things that I think are happening locally. There, um, within the last few years, there was a shelter built specifically to embrace those young people who identify as LGBTQ so that they can get the resources and services they need and find housing and hopefully stabilize and find, you know, job opportunities and all those other things. Um, and, and I think that is one way that we can do it is find communities for them where they can be embraced. And that community, I mean, is people who uh, are going to help them um, you know, through this transition into adulthood. I know I have a 16-year-old at home, and I couldn't imagine in two years him being ready to do anything on his own. He is not ready. That's right. That's <laughs> so, right. Um, and so we need to make sure that we – and that's the same for these for, – for our young people who are in the foster care system. And, it, and um, there is more work happening now, I think, as we have identified the numbers, and we see the numbers now and realizing that this is what is happening – um, that there are some opportunities for those young people to find housing before they leave um, a foster family or a youth uh, facility or, you know, those facilities. Unfortunately, a lot of our young um, teenage and young adults, uh, foster children, may not actually be in a family as much as they are in a group home, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you're in a group home at 17 and your 18th birthday rolls around, now you're aged out of a this group home, you're going to probably be given a number to a shelter until that's where you can go. Wow. Unless, you know, you have some other resources to get yourself an apartment. But that's hard. It's hard for an 18-year-old to do that. Um, so unless you're going to college or some other things. And so the bills that I'm working on in Harrisburg is a series of the legislative package of bills um, I'm working with some colleagues on uh, Goes from uh, includes a number of bills to support college students, uh, making sure that we have liaisons in both high schools and colleges that will work specifically with these young people who are experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity to make sure they have a trans pass or they know how to get uh, you know uh, sign up for so for benefits when they turn 18 if they need. Uh, food stamps or SNAP benefits, and um, if they now have a child themselves, to make sure that they can get WIC and other resources for that child and also housing. And so uh, that's one part, creating a safety net for these young people. Uh, Another bill will require our state schools and community colleges, if they have a student enrolled in their school that has identified as um, someone who is experiencing homelessness, to allow them to stay on campus during campus break. If you were like me and your mom moved every year, my sophomore year she moved into a studio apartment, and so I no longer had a room to go back to. So, you know, I took an extra class, or I think one year I, I volunteered to work for graduation 
so that I can stay a couple, two, you know, two or three weeks later until I found an apartment. Um, these are some opportunities we need to make sure that these young people can stay on the weekends, can stay on Thanksgiving break, that they have access to the dining hall or food during those times, um, and that they're not homeless during winter break or spring break or, or summer break. Um, and then there are some other things we're doing legislatively to allow minors to contract. If you're 16 and you are an, what we call an um, unaccompanied minor or a minor that is not living with an adult, um, you need to be able to sign a contract or a lease. You need to be able to sign a contract for medical services or some other social services. Um, and if you're not 18, you can't do that. This will allow those 16-year-olds to do that so they can get the resources they need. Um, and lastly, we are looking at how do we serve families who are what we're calling doubling up. And that, I think you mentioned, and may have happened even in your hometown of Abington, even if you didn't see it, mm -hmm. where you may go live with your aunt. Your entire family may go live with your aunt and your cousins. And we may all have seen that and never identified it as being homeless. Never identified it as homelessness. Right? But that's what it is. Mom, your dad, whoever, your family couldn't make the rent this month, so... You, you you go live with a cousin for a while, and you doubled up two, three families in a household until you can figure it out. Well, what's happening in the suburbs is and uh, we're seeing a trend where the suburban school districts are now questioning whether or not you live at this address or whether your family is using a, a relative's address to get you into a good school district, and they're trying to push these students. And if you if you can imagine, many of them are students of color. They're right. black and Latino students out of their district saying, no, you're using a fake address just to get into our good schools, when in reality a lot of them are doubling up in these households. Um, and so these are some concerns we're seeing happen across the Commonwealth, and particularly in those suburban school districts where they're trying to push those students out of the schools. And we're saying you cannot do that without a full investigation. Um, and, you know, and during that investigation, you can't put the student out until there is, it is final. Um, but there has been attempts to kick students out of school and, and really, um, you know, come at families for doubling up in those communities. Um, so these are some of the things that we're working on, and I think it's important that um, it is followed up with dollars because to expand access to housing, affordable housing, to expand access to Medicaid um, and WIC for those young people who may have children as well, um, or for those families that are experiencing homelessness and have young children, we need to put dollars behind those programs to expand the safety nets. We've seen some of that be alleviated during the pandemic as we saw an influx of dollars come into our uh, state. But what we also realized is because kids were not going to school, we were missing which families may be experiencing homelessness because usually school or daycare or some other point of contact is where we find these families. And if they're not going to school, it's likely that it's being underreported. So the 8,000 number that I mentioned uh, at the top of my remarks in Philadelphia and the 40,000 in Pennsylvania, we believe it may be a little higher 
um, but families are underreporting. Well, 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 I mean, let's be let's be real with each other. Uh, when you start talking about the doubling up aspect, uh, you know good and well, and I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying it you uh, globally. We know good and well that, especially in our community, there's a whole lot of that going on. I can think of five or six families right now where I know that they're they're all living together, and I just never thought about it as homelessness. It's yeah, look, some of it is intergenerational families, and we and we love to have those families. But if you sat down and spoke to you know some relatives, it may be because of financial reasons for someone, right? right. So right. we know that's happening. We've that's seen it in our households. We've seen it in our families and in our community. So, so I, I've always got to ask this when we talk about legislation that really is necessary and needed. Uh, right now uh, for these young people. Uh, do you have bipartisan support? Yes, we do. And in large part because um, they are seeing homeless num- homelessness numbers among young people rise across the state. Right? I said only of the 40,000, only 8,000 are from Philadelphia. So that means there's another 30,000 students, young people that are experiencing homelessness across the state. So we are working closely, particularly in central PA. They're seeing an increase of homeless families in that, in that area, and um, they know that they want to be partners um, and to make sure we can support uh, the families, whether they're in rural communities or in urban districts like Philadelphia. So, yes, there's, there's, there is some uh, bipartisan support for these efforts. Any timeline, and I know that's difficult when we talk about moving legislation through to the governor's desk, but do you have any goal relative to a timeline to get legislation enacted? Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that we can get some of these bills through committee um, this year, uh, perhaps before June. And if we get them through committee into the House floor, then we can get it to the Senate by the fall and hopefully to the governor's desk by the end of the year. I think there's some movement. We had a hearing in November with the Education Committee, the Human Services Committee, and my committee, the Children and Youth Committee, because these bills are in all three. And uh, it was very positive feedback. We had some testimony from uh, social workers and other experts in the field who are working with these young people and from some young people experiencing homelessness themselves. And I think that testimony really um, shored up the support we needed to come back uh, in the spring and get these bills out of committee. You're listening to Philly's Favor 100.7 FM, 100.3 WRNBH. D3. We're in the pastor's office talking to Representative Donna Bollock, and I want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing in this area. But before we let you go, I would be remiss if I did not ask you uh, what your thoughts are um, regarding the new administration that just took office on Tuesday, uh, had an opportunity to be down at the Met and and watch all of the wonderful and historic uh, uh, festivities as we looked at the swearing in uh, of Sherelle Parker and her entire, and the city council and the judges. I mean, it was, it was amazing to me. It was a day. It was an exciting day to be at the Met on Tuesday. And as you said, watch history be made, right? Uh, the 100th mayor of our city of Philadelphia and to, for that to be our first woman mayor, you know, no, I'm not knocking on a gentleman here, but I'm going to quote a little <laughs> bit of Jay-Z, right? You know, we had 99 <laughs> problems, maybe not problems, but 99 men. So 
some of them may have been problems, but finally to have a woman at the head of the city, I am so inspired by her leadership. I have said this numerous times. I was on the campaign trail with her. I had the opportunity to serve with Mayor Parker while she was still in the state house. We overlapped for a year. She had helped me find my voice, and it's something that I talk about all the time, about the passion in which she speaks about this city, and she did that in Harrisburg, and she did it as a city council person, and she will do it as a mayor, has uh, encouraged me to never, never be small, to never quiet myself for anybody else's comfort, but to shout from the mountaintops, if I can say, about what needs to happen to move our city forward, and also just about how amazing our city is. She is the cheerleader that our city needs right now, but more than that, she has the policy chops and the execution know-how to get it done. I've seen her work in Harrisburg. I've seen her work when I was a staffer in city council when she would come and meet with Council President Clark, um, and she wanted things done. She she knew how to connect those dots and use, as she so uh, affectionately would say over and over during the campaign, her intergovernmental experience mm-hmm. to bring all of the players to the table. We need that. But also to see... Uh, a group of city council members, many of them who I've worked with in the past, some who have been my interns or have worked for me. So I'm excited to see them grow, um, that I've mentored in other ways, and now that they are now in position to lead our city as part of this amazing city council with such diversity, um, youthfulness. I think there's a sense of energy you can find in that group of leaders. And I, I believe that they are looking to work together to really um, bring home the kind of, um, you know, uh, resources and bring home the kind of change that the citizens of Philadelphia are looking for. This is a moment. Uh, I'm excited for them. I I am going to pray every day for them because being in office is not easy. Your families, as just like you know as a pastor, your families sacrifice a lot. Um and there are a lot of expectations when you are in and you have the privilege of being in office, but it is also a obligation and a responsibility. And I know that all of those folks take it seriously. I'm excited about some of the judges um, that I have worked with. Again, uh, my former law partner is now a judge. Really, really exciting um, leadership and a great time for the city. I think that with the combination of leaders that we see at the city, at the state with myself and Speaker Joanna McClinton, who I came to came into office with and shared an office with in 2015, um, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, Jordan Harris, the chair of the Philadelphia delegation, Morgan Cephas, and and folks in the Senate like Senator Simpson Hughes and, and Sheree Street. We are we are in position. We are in position, Pastor. It's on us to get it done. You know what I mean, but you know what I really do love about this group of leaders, uh, servant leaders. I never use the word leader without putting servant in front of it. But what I really love about this group of servant leaders, when you talk about yourself, Jordan, Jason, uh, you know, um, Morgan Cephas, and 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 then when I look at City Council with. Uh, Catherine Gilmore Richardson and Isaiah Thomas and just all of them. One thing that we've we learned in the church is that you got to be able to articulate the vision before you can get folk to follow. You got to be able to touch them where they live. And all of you have that gift because 
you all come from what I like to call a shared background. We know mm-hmm. the pain. We know mm-hmm. we know what our people have been through. And 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 listen, we we're here to serve all the people of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. But That's guess right. what? I, we also know that there's been an underserved block, and I believe this group can help lift that underserved group up as well. I'm pumped. Absolutely. What you, what I would tell you about many of us that are in position now, we have worked as staffers, so we have that know-how. We did the work as a staffer. Um, and But as you mentioned, we have that lived experience and that shared experience. And we want to we also want to have that shared prosperity. We want to all come up together. Um, and so I believe we, we will do that. Uh, it, is, it is really exciting to see that, that work. Many of us, I mean, we, we live, work, play in our communities. My constituents will find me at the dollar store. <laughs> they will find me at the you know, hairdresser because I'm right where you are. They're always kind of shocked to see me in the in the grocery store, you know, buying things that you're buying. I got to shop and my kids got to eat too. But because of that, I'm right where the people are. And so are my colleagues. And those experiences I think are going to, you know, lend itself to our service. And as you mentioned, servant leadership. Um, So thank you so much for your support of the work that we've been doing um, and, you know, your partnership to help us or, you know, get the word out about the work that we're doing through shows like this and otherwise. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today, and I'm going to share this with every elected leader that we have on the show this year. Uh, my church is in Frankfurt. That's where my heart is, but my heart is also in Kensington right now, uh, and we're doing a lot of outreach in that area. I'm not trying to start a new part of the conversation, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be coming to all of you because we need resources in that area. And I feel like, you know what, uh, it's been going on too long. And so several of us have just said, we're going to stand at the tip of the sword and we're going to be out there with those folks uh, each and every day until we can get this problem solved over there. So I believe this is a group that can help us get it solved. So I'm excited to work with you. Thank you for coming on the pastor's office today. And I look forward to talking to you again real, real soon. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. God bless you. And we'll be right back with Councilwoman Jamie Gaudier right after these commercial messages. Hey, Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. And I certainly want to thank Representative Donna Bullock for joining us in our first segment today. Uh, and, and and I want to now welcome into the pastor's office. She's no stranger to the pastor's office. She's been with us before. Uh, and we want to talk about... Uh, yeah, it looks a little unconstitutional to me, but we'll, we'll, we'll dig into it. But let's welcome into the pastor's office Councilmember Jamie Gaudier. Councilmember Gaudier, first of all, congratulations on your reelection. Happy New Year. Uh, and, and, and come on in. Let's talk a little bit. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year to you as well. So Philadelphia has a district attorney that has been elected by the people. Uh, But Mm -hmm. there has been a law passed called Act 40, which allows the Pennsylvania Attorney General to hire or appoint a special prosecutor for activities or crimes that happen on SEPTA property. Is SEPTA a separate mm-hmm. city now? I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but <laughs> but help me understand. Am I stepping into a, a new zip code when I go to SEPTA property now? No, no. SEPTA is not. It's separate um, from the city of Philadelphia. We have a 
district attorney already that we have duly elected um, to prosecute crime, whether that crime happens on SEPTA property um, or across the rest of the city. Well, I, so okay, so I'm not being sarcastic, but I, I got to understand. So, how does a law like this get passed uh, if, in fact, SEPTA is not separate from the city of Philadelphia? You know, I think that that this is political in nature. This comes from the same um, mostly white GOP representatives in the Senate who worked to impeach District Attorney Krasner, which was found to be unconstitutional. And so now they're just going a different route. And, you know, they've passed this law to try to usurp the district attorney's um, responsibilities and to try to disenfranchise voters here in Philadelphia. And I think it's outrageous. I also think it sets a a dangerous, um, undemocratic uh, precedent. And so it's definitely something that we should be fighting against. All right. So, you know, I was brought up uh, in, you know, sales is my background. And so when presenting to a client, we always talk about the pros and the cons of a particular uh, opportunity or proposal. I don't want to talk about the pros here, but, but I do want to talk about what are the cons of this Act 40 being fully implemented here in the city of Philadelphia? What's the downside? Well, we, we don't need this. We already have a district attorney's office. Um, they should continue their current responsibilities um, and be the lead agency to investigate and prosecute, cr- prosecute crimes in Philadelphia without this outside um, interference. Um, so to me, uh, it's all con, right? And it's all um, political. And, you know, it just also happens to come right around the anniversary of January 6th. Um, where our former president, Donald Trump, um, and his, you know, colleagues, including members of the Pennsylvania General Assembly who voted for Act 40, incited an insurrection at the United States Capitol. So they've already shown that they are against democracy. They've already shown that they have no regard in particular for the votes of black and brown people in Philadelphia. So it's not a coincidence to me that this is happening, but, you know, I don't see any pros. It's all con. So, you know, I I do want to deal with the elephant in the room. You know, anywhere you go within Philadelphia political circles where Republicans and Democrats are gathered, or when we're talking about some of the issues uh, that are existing as relates to crime in Philadelphia, uh, we tend to always hear from certain sectors uh, that D.A. Krasner does not prosecute uh, crimes, you know, that that he tends to, uh, well, let's say what they say, be soft on certain crimes. Um, I tend to look at it uh, as he has a level of sensitivity that in many cases we've not seen before uh, to people who have certainly been uh, marginalized by the system and 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 abused by the system, uh, and I think he tends to look at things a bit more objectively. Uh, but but I do want to get your thought. Do you think? Uh, I know you say it's political, but do you think this has something to do with the way they feel about the way Krasner handles crime here in the city of Philadelphia? I mean, I suppose they could have 
thoughts about the way D.A. Krasner handles crime, but the fact of the matter is that these are lawmakers that don't live here. Mm-hmm. So I suppose that they can have thoughts from whatever county they live in that's very far away from Philadelphia, but the fact of the matter is that the voters here elected D.A. Larry Krasner. Mm-hmm. They elected him um, in a landslide election, um, and the voters here to have the power to determine who the district attorney is um, and, and to not have that power undermined by Republicans in Harrisburg who have no idea what, what it's like to be in our communities. Furthermore, these are the same legislators who time and time again have refused to pass common sense gun legislation that would keep guns off of the streets of Philadelphia. They are the same legislators who have refused to fund SEPTA adequately so that SEPTA could invest more um, in public safety measures. So this Act 40, to me, is an empty law. It's a distraction. And, you know, I feel like these legislators are using it to shield their inaction on everything from gun control to uh, public transit um, here in the city of Philadelphia and across the state. Understood. So you and Councilmember Kenyatta Johnson have authored a letter uh, encouraging Attorney General Michelle Henry not to act on this law. Uh, So help our listeners that may not understand or may not be fully aware of how government works. So when I think about it, when most listeners think about it, they say, well, the law's been enacted. So now that means because it's a law, the Attorney General has to act. Uh, Is that correct or is that not correct? I mean, we're hopeful that the attorney general will take a stand here, will say publicly that this is unnecessary, will say publicly um, that Philadelphia already has a district attorney, and will also consider that this is quite discriminatory. This law only applies to the city of Philadelphia, where the majority of voters are black and brown. It's discriminatory and it's racist. And we're hopeful that the attorney general will, you know, will realize that um, and will take a public stance on, on the issue. So, so let me ask you this. Uh, you know, I, I, we do certainly believe uh, in partnerships and people working together. Uh, have the civil rights organizations spoken up about Act 40 yet? I mean, have you heard from them? Are they making their way to Pennsylvania? The church community, I, th- I think it's going to take a collective effort to make sure that this is never enacted. I've heard some chatter. I've heard um, people, you know, denouncing this law. Um, but I think we need more of an organized effort to really stand against this. And the other thing that should be of interest to um, people living here in Philadelphia is that not only is this law undemocratic, um, not only is this law discriminatory and tries to disenfranchise voters here in Philadelphia, the law also demands that the city of Philadelphia pay for this special prosecutor. So we're being forced to, you know, Uh, have a special prosecutor that we don't need because we already have a duly elected district attorney. Um, And on top of that, the city is being asked to fit the bill. 
Yeah, and 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 being asked by people as you as you so adeptly stated earlier that do not live in the city of Philadelphia and do not know our our struggle, our pain, they don't know anything about us. They, so this is this is this is ridiculous. And I'm certainly uh, going to share this with uh, the various ministers' conferences that uh, we are a part of because I think uh, you know. We stand right now at a point in the history of the city where I think we can accomplish a lot. Uh, this yeah, new administration yeah. and this new council and these new judges that have come in, uh, I put it like this, if we fail, it's our own fault right now. Uh, yeah. But I think you have to have the grassroots support in matters of this nature uh, to really let the public know that this is something that we should stand against. So I certainly will share that message. I know that you and Councilmember Kenyatta Johnson are sharing the message, uh, but I think uh, when all of us get together, I think we can we can make a difference in this in the situation. I believe that, too. You're listening to Philly's Favor 100.7 FM and 100.3 WRNB HD3. We're in the pastor's office with Councilmember Jamie Gaudier. And Councilmember Gaudier, before we let you go, uh, I absolutely want to go back to that statement I made earlier that we stand at a point in history that the city of Philadelphia has never seen before. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, Philadelphia's first female mayor, who happens to be black, was sworn in as mayor. A whole new city council uh, 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 that looks to be totally focused on working together. Sworn in yeah. the first LGBTQ member, openly LGBTQ member of Philadelphia City Council sworn in. I mean, there was a lot of history in that building in the <laughs> Met on Tuesday. Talk to me about your level of excitement about what the future of Philadelphia looks like. I think it's a very exciting time and I feel like we are approaching brighter days in the city of Philadelphia. Um, I'm very excited for my new council colleagues um, and the, for the opportunity to work with them. Um, I'm very proud to have uh, Kenyatta Johnson as our council president. Um, I'm very proud to see uh, the first black woman elected as the 100th mayor of Philadelphia. And, you know, I feel like we're laser focused, all of us, on the biggest issues of the city. Um, whether that be uh, gun violence and making our neighborhoods safer, um, affordable housing and making sure that everyone has a place to call home um, in the city of Philadelphia or economic opportunity um, and making sure that people have um, family-sustaining jobs and business opportunities that can pull themselves and their families out of poverty. Um, I think those are the things that we're all moving towards as a collective, um, and, and, and I, I'm just thrilled about it. Well, I'm excited. Uh, and as I just told Representative Bullock, uh, you know, one of the ways that you, you get the constituents to really support what's going on in elected government is you've got to be able to articulate the vision. Uh, yeah. and, and get people to buy in. I mean, we learned that in the faith community. You know, you got to articulate the vision. And I feel like all of you, you know, when I look at you and, and, and Council Member Gilmore Richardson, Council Member Kenyatta Johnson, who, by the way, I, I'm so excited to see him as president. He's been through so much. 
in the last two years. And to see him still emerge uh, as council president, it it is a testimony that God is real. Uh, But but to see all of you history makers there, I know you can articulate the vision because we all come from a shared background. Um, and, And so... I want you to know that we are praying for you. Uh, uh, we're Thank excited you so about what you can do, but I'm saying this to every elected leader that comes on my show uh, over these next four years. I pastor in Philly. This radio station reaches all of Philadelphia, uh, but my pastorate is in Frankfurt, and my heart is there and in Kensington. And I want you to know that uh, there are several of us that are faith leaders that want to be at the tip of the sword in dealing with this area called Kensington. It has to get it has to get fixed. It has to be changed. And we know we put our monies where our priorities are. So I'm asking you as one of our elected servant leaders, let's put resources into dealing with this area called Kensington because it is an eyesore for the city of Philadelphia. More important than that, people are dying out there every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I'm definitely behind that and know that that has to be a top priority for the city of Philadelphia. I don't represent Kensington, but I feel deeply for what people are experiencing in that area, and no one should have to live, you know, in a place where they don't feel hope. Um, And so it has to be priority number one for the entire city to bring hope back to that community. Council Member Jamie Gaudier, I want to thank you for joining us in the pastor's office today, and I am looking forward to all of the victories that you and your fellow council members will bring to the citizens of the city of Philadelphia. God bless you, ma'am. God bless you, too. Thank you so much. Take a minute, turn the radio Son.